uh, Exodus chapter 20, verse 16 this week. Uh, We've been working through the Ten Commandments together, and we've talked about how they reveal to us what we really look like. That prior to coming face to face with a holy God uh, and comparing ourselves to him, we have a tendency to look at ourselves through carnival-like mirrors. You've been through uh, funny houses before where you can get in a mirror and your head will look really big in one or really small in another, likewise with your waist. And so uh, you find one that you really like, an image of yourself you really like, and you spend some time with that mirror. And and so prior to coming face to face with a holy God, we all think of ourselves as typically pretty good people. But then when we see how holy God is, we realize that we are broken, that we are not like him, that we could never live in his presence legitimately because we are sinners. The law shows us this. The law shows us our own brokenness, and it drives us to despair in a way because it condemns us. But thankfully, we know that the end of the law is Christ, that he has lived the life we should have lived, died the death we should have died, and raised from the dead in order to secure for us a place in his kingdom with the Father in heaven. He has brought us peace with God. And so no longer do we see the law as this burden, but as our birthright. It becomes a joy for us to keep the law. The law moves from being something that seems like drudgery to our delight. We begin to see the law as romantic. Just as when you fall in love, if you've ever been in love, there comes this point in time where uh, you say to the other one, uh, your wish is my command, and it's your joy to serve them. And this is what happens with us when we come into a personal relationship with God. And because we see the law as romantic, and because it reveals to us the character of God, we've been studying what's really a sampling of the whole law of God, kind of summarized in these ten words or ten commandments. And we've made it all the way up to commandment number nine. And if you've been with us, you know that we are working on memorizing the commandments together. Uh, we don't want to be like the congressman on the Stephen Colbert show who was fighting to have them uh, stay in a courthouse and then couldn't recite them, right? And so we're trying to remember and we've been using a mnemonic device and so we're going to go over that and then add to it. So if you want to do one finger commandment, number one is uh, there is only one God, there's none besides him. And then we've done number two like this, a hard rock or a wolf pack symbol. It's to make no graven images. It kind of looks like a dog and you don't bow down to them. Uh, Third commandment, we've done this. It's kind of a Hunger Games deal, Katniss Everdeen, right? You can take it to your lips. Don't misuse the Lord's name, or if you're a King James person, don't take the Lord's name in vain. Uh, Number four, we've done our fingers like this and kind of like a soft pillow and said, uh, keep the Sabbath day holy, or uh, we've adopted the principle of that as Christians and said, rest in Christ. Uh, Fifth commandment, we we did the salute, honor your father and your mother. And sixth commandment, do not murder, do not kill. Uh, Seventh commandment, we've said, marriage is between a man and a woman and sex stays therein. That's the context for it. Nowhere else. Uh, Number eight, in some countries, they cut off your fingers for stealing. In other ones, they put you in jail. Do not steal. Uh, Seven was do not commit adultery, right? Uh, I haven't been saying them, have I? We go, you've got it. You've got it by now. Uh, Number nine is this morning. Uh, This isn't my favorite one, but it works, uh, is you take your hands like this, and then you take one of your thumbs, it doesn't matter which, and you just pretend like it's talking to the other fingers, and it's saying, it's bearing false witness about this hand over here. Saying saying to do all this stuff, it's gossiping, it's wrong. Do, Do not bear false witness or uh, I thought, like, uh, if you've ever seen a courtroom, they usually have you put your hand on the Bible. And I think they have you put your hand up, right? So you could just fold the thumb in like this and then say, do not bear false witness. Could be another one. But um, those are our nine so far. 
And our main idea this morning, what, what I want you to walk away with in terms of application, is to be a truth bearer. Be a truth bearer. And, and we're going to discuss it this way. We're going to talk about what is a lie, why we lie, and then why the truth is better than lies. We're going to pray together and then get started. God, we ask that you would be present with us now, <clears throat> that you would chase away any thoughts that would distract us from focusing on you. Pray that you would make us subject to your word, that you would be uh, gently breaking our bones so that they might heal rightly, that we would allow your word to um, do what it must so that we could be more like you. Father, sanctification or, or becoming Christ-like is not an easy process, but it's, it's one you require of us, and it's, it's one you take us through. And so we just ask that you would uh, equip us for that and allow us to uh, enjoy the sweetness of um, confessing sin to you and being made new once more. And we thank you that uh, you love us and accept us just as much this morning and just as much on our worst days as you do on our best days. How marvelous it is that you love us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So context once more. Remember, Israel has been saved out of slavery and into the presence of God. They've been slaves, saved from slavery and for worship, and they're standing at the foot of the holy mountain of God. And what has happened is God has descended upon the mountain. There is smoke and lightning and earthquakes and the thunder and the people. There's also the sounds of trumpets. It's just a crazy scene. And the most terrifying thing that's happening is that God is speaking to the people. It's so terrifying, in fact, that after the 10 words have been spoken, they're like, all right, don't continue anymore. Moses, you talk to us instead, because if God keeps talking, we fear that we will die. And so God is speaking at this point. This is the context that we drop ourselves down into, and we read in Exodus chapter 20, verse 16, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Now, traditionally, this has been summarized as you shall not lie. Uh, and I think this does provide a good summary. Uh, the language used here, though, seems to point to um, some other aspects of the commandment as well, right? The, the, the ninth word is directly connected to the idea of legal testimony. And so it exhorts us to give honest or true testimony. And so the, the sin of false witness, uh, that is of distorting the facts, I, I think it can be summarized as distorting the facts in such a way as to harm one's neighbor. You with me? Uh, the, the sin of false witness is distorting the facts in such a way as to harm one's neighbor. Uh, we can understand why this would be uh, kind of a big deal, right? Why, why it would be included in the Decalogue. You can uh, imagine a society wherein there is no forensic evidence, there's no DNA evidence, there's no uh, video experience, and so everything depended on eyewitness testimony. And so it makes sense that we would want people to tell the truth in order for society to flourish and justice to be served. So everyone needs to speak honestly about the guilt or innocent innocence of the accused. This is good for me and good for my neighbor so that somebody's not going to lie and have me unjustly punished. Uh, also, they, they're kind of built in in case you were trying to lie to get someone else punished. Uh, Deuteronomy 19 tells us that uh, a witness found to be false would receive the penalty that he was seeking to impose on the accused. And so it's a big deal here. You're not going to, to want to lie or bear false witness. It's for everyone's good that the truth is told. 
It's also the courtroom context of this command that makes me understand it uh, a little bit differently than the majority of Christian scholars and theologians that we've talked about it before earlier in Exodus. Uh, And so I believe the narrow scope of the command impacts how we apply it more broadly. Uh, Most Christians, like I said, follow Augustine or Murray, who believe that we should never, ever, under any circumstances, tell any untruth. Uh, And like I said, I'm in the minority, so if if you're going, what is he talking about? I disagree here. Don't worry. Hang out for a second. We'll get to what everybody agrees on in a second, but uh, I'm going to tell you what I think this command means. Uh, And so let's talk about some of those reasons that I believe not all untruths or deceptions are sinful lies. First, the ninth commandment itself does not mandate truth in an abstract way, but in the concrete relationships between believers and their neighbors. Second, a lie is not simply an untrue statement. For example, a mistake is not a lie, nor is a hyperbolic statement. So some of you might say, he preaches forever. That's not a lie. It's exaggerated language. Hyperbole is not a lie. If so, Jesus would be a liar. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Jesus is not a liar. Hyperboles are not lies, nor are fictional stories, unless the author pretends that their fantasy is somehow factual. Uh, Some theology inside of uh, fiction novels, if believed, would make you a heretic, right? If you build your theology on the Da Vinci Code or the Shack or or the Way of Kings, uh, your theology is not going to be great because the theology in the book does not correspond with proper Christian theology. But they're not claiming to be theology. It's, it's fiction. And so we're free to enjoy the frivolity of those inventions. They're not lies unless we try to make them into truth. Does that make sense? Right, everybody understands this, right? Like you're not reading, um, I'm, pick your fantasy book, and, and trying to live your life according to that, at least I hope. Right? Not, not picking up Lord of the Rings and going, this is how you know, Sauron's out there somewhere. Although it's allegorical in ways. Anyhow, it's not great to build your life on, theo- on a theology that is built around fiction. We understand there's a distinction between fantasy and reality, and so a fiction novel is not a lie. It's a story, right? <laughs> you don't read a fiction book and go, these lies, I can't believe it. Oh, we can only read biographies. Same is true of flatteries, right? They're part of our normal social discourse. So we say things like, sincerely yours, or I had a good time. Uh, if you've ever been to Mike and Janie's house for a meal, uh, there's a required social discourse there. You say whatever you want about the food, but then you follow it up with, but that's just the way I like it, right? That's just, it's part of the, the social, um, social fabric of their home. Generally, the food there is pretty good. These things may be literally untrue, but everybody understands that. And such language serves an edifying purpose and serves as a kind of glue that holds civilization together, right? What we sometimes call white lies edify neighbor rather than bringing their harm. And I don't think these types of deceptions are included underneath the ninth commandment. I don't think it's what uh, the ninth commandment has in mind because of the courtroom context, Uh, more like a, a surprise party, right? When somebody throws you a surprise party, you don't walk in, everybody goes, surprise, and you turn around with a person you've been with all day, you liar! right? How could you? No, you, don't, you, you understand that they've deceived you in such a way as to bring about good for you. They're not bringing you harm. You see it too in board games and sports, right? Whenever a quarterback runs a play-action pass, nobody's going, I can't believe he did that. can't believe he did it. It's a deception that's intentional, that's expected. 
Same thing with the poker player who bluffs, right? It's part of the game. And some, these uses of languages and these behaviors are untrue, but I don't think anybody would claim that they're lies. Therefore, I don't think they can be included under the scope of the ninth commandment. Uh, I agree with Martin Luther. I think he makes a very helpful distinction, and plus it uh, uses alliteration, and we're Baptists. We love alliteration. He's, he says lies can be harmful, they can be humorous, or they can be helpful, right? And, and I, I, think, um, I think that we know the difference, right? You know the difference. You know the difference between a helpful lie and one that is harmful. You know the difference between playing games, telling jokes, being nice, and plagiarizing someone else's work or gossiping about a coworker. Everybody's with me, right? So, so here's the definition of bearing false witness that I want to work with. And I will use lie as a synonym. A lie, that's a harmful lie, is a word or act that intentionally deceives a neighbor in order to harm him or her, or even to bring harm upon oneself. John Frame, the ethicist, helps us understand this. He, he writes of the ninth commandment, and I'm going to quote him at length here. We must give attention to the term neighbor. Is everybody a neighbor? If so, the commandment would forbid us to mislead anybody in order to hurt that person. But Scripture does not teach that everybody is our neighbor. Certainly, the parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke 10 greatly expanded the Jews' concept of a neighbor. They wanted to construe it narrowly at least to exclude the Gentiles, so as to limit their responsibility. But Jesus taught that the chief question is not, who is my neighbor, but to whom shall I be a neighbor? And he answered the latter question by saying that we should be neighbors to anyone we find in need. But even the parable does not universalize the concept of neighbor. Not everyone we meet on the road is a person in need of care. Some people that we meet may be thieves or murderers or our enemies. Now we are to love our enemies, but that love of enemies is not incompatible with the desire to bring God's justice and judgment upon them. After all, God's own jealousy and anger is not incompatible with his general love for all of his creatures. Moreover, such love is not incompatible with self-defense, punishment, or just war. It is in this way that I would understand a rather substantial number of biblical passages in which someone misleads an enemy without incurring any condemnation and sometimes even being commended. Indeed, the ninth commandment places the burden of proof on those who seek to justify deception. However, just as the sixth commandment does not rule out all killing, but focuses us to look elsewhere in Scripture to find out what kind of killing is legitimate, so too the ninth commandment requires us to look elsewhere to determine what type of deceptions are legitimate. Y'all with me? That was an important part right there. When we put this into practice, one thing becomes clear throughout Scripture. Deception that is uncondemned and sometimes lauded always has to do with the promotion of justice against the wicked, and especially so when the wicked are seeking innocent life. Uh, so, for example, you've probably heard the famous ethical dilemma. You are a Christian in World War II Germany, and you have Jews hidden in your attic, and the Nazis knock on your door. Are you hiding Jews in here? They ask you directly. Now, some of these guys, uh, Augustine and other folks that think you should never lie, they'll say you should tell the truth. I got Jews in the attic and basically condemn them, right? 
So the idea of the whole dilemma is you either, you are bringing about their death or you have to lie. You have to break one of the commandments if you understand it the way Augustine does. I don't understand it that way. I actually think that uh, the requirement, what you're required to do in this, in this situation is to deceive, to lie to the Nazis. I think it's a holy deception. It's promoting life. It's promoting justice. Ignoring the fact that the person who's got them in the attic is already taking part in a deception of sorts, right? That's what hiding is. <laughs> Anyhow, the deception in this case aims to promote justice and preserve innocent life. Uh, We see this kind of what I would call holy deception. We see it today in police work, right? And they do a sting operation to to catch drug dealers and the like. Steve Ritchie and I had a long conversation about it when I was prepared for this. Uh, It's not wrong for the police to take part in sting operations. We saw it earlier in Exodus when we considered the lie told by the Hebrew midwives, right? Remember Pharaoh wants to kill all the Jewish boys? And he's saying, when they come out of the birth canal, end them. And, and they don't. And then he, they go to him, he's like, why? Why aren't they being killed? And they're like, oh, the Hebrew women are vigorous and they give birth before we get there. Can't help it. And then we're told that God blesses them and gives them families as a consequence of this, right? Well, we see this kind of deception throughout Scripture. We see it in the case of Rahab, right? She, she, the Canaanites uh, are deceived by her as she harbors Joshua's spies. She's taken into Israel and saved, blessed as a result of her deception. In Judges, Jael tells Sisera, the enemy of Israel, yeah, I'll take care of you. Come on into my house. He, he asks for milk. She gives him water, and then she drives a tent peg through his head to the glory of God. She is lauded as a hero. In the same book, Gideon uses concealment and deception as a strategy for war. He is called just. In 1 Samuel 21, David pretends to be crazy to preserve his life in Gath. In 2 Samuel 15, David counsels, I can't say this name, Hushai, Hashi, uh, it's a counselor, to lie to his son Absalom, who's kind of subverted him as king. In 1 Kings 22, God sends, God himself sends a lying spirit against Arab. In all these passages, and there are more just like them, deceit is utilized to the end of promoting justice and or preserving life. All that said, that's how I understand this commandment, that there is a harmful lie that we are prohibited from taking place in. All that said, none of this frees you up to lie at your whimsy, right? Just like just war theory and a belief in self-defense don't free you up to kill whoever you want. Holy deception is not a license to lie. Truth be told, uh, you're likely never going to find yourself in a position wherein uh, your deceit is a necessary um, part of your godliness. I mean, aside from playing games or telling jokes or or social flatteries we we mentioned above, right? Like, none of the wise among us is answering our wife when she says, do I look good in this? And, And saying, no, you look like a pile of hot garbage. That is the truest truth I can give you. No, no, we're, we're going to u- utilize those social flatteries, maybe find a softer way to say it, a less true way to say it. Uh, you might look better in this, right? <laughs> I'm not going to find ourselves, not a whole lot of us are in situations where, you know, Nazis at your door, Jews in your attic type situations, right? There's not a whole lot of, um, what I'm trying to say here is when we lie, and we do, we are harmful liars for the most parts, Right? despite the situations in life that warrant helpful lies or holy deceptions, you know yourselves to be liars. All of us have told harmful or sinful lies in some way. And so if you're, if you're keeping track, last week I told everybody, all of us, that you're thieves, and this week I'm telling you you're liars, right? <laughs> Y'all keep coming back, but 
because, because the gospel is true, right? Let's think about why we lie. Like nobody typically needs to be convinced that they're a liar. So we, we should consider why we do it. I think two primary reasons. We lie to get what we want on one hand or to get out of what we don't want. Uh, first, let's talk about how we lie to get what we want. I think kids are a great illustrator of this one. Right, kid uh, comes to me. Can I have a cookie? Uh, have you cleaned your room? Yes, I've cleaned my room. Here's the cookie. Guess what? Room not cleaned, right? Uh, nine times out of ten, it's still a mess. Uh, or how about some parents among us, right? Uh, you find out that kids eat free or fly free or whatever free if they're a certain age, and suddenly all the kids are under three, Right? Like, your son's got a full beard, is married, has kids of his own, and he's trying to get a kid's meal, right? Y'all laugh, but I worked in the service industry. People do this. We lie to get what we want, even if it's something silly like a cookie or a free meal. Sometimes we lie about things that are a little bit more serious, though, when it comes to getting what we want. Don't, don't raise your hands. <laughs> that could be bad. But how many of you have lied on your taxes or on resumes in the past? And I said don't raise your hands because statistically at least half the people in this room have lied on their taxes or on their resume. Can't think about lying on a resume without remembering uh, Notre Dame head coach, George O'Leary. Some of you remember this story. Uh, he, he'd taken hold of what was his dream job at Notre Dame back in 2001, uh, but soon, because of a hidden deception, he, he loses it. Uh, you see, what happened was a reporter, after he'd been hired, started kind of digging into his life, and uh, he had said that he played football at the University of New Hampshire. And so she's going back to all these other teammates, and she's asking, what was it like to play with George O'Leary? You know, was he the same back then as he is now? And they all are like deadpaning her. I don't remember that guy at all. I don't remember. I say it was a her. It could have been him. I don't know. They don't, they don't remember him. And it comes out that he had never played football at the University of New Hampshire, even though he listed it on his resume. said that he lettered. See, what had happened was many, many years prior, before he had ever got his first coaching position, he thought that by putting this on his resume, that he played football at New Hampshire, that, that he would somehow have a better chance at getting his first job. I don't know if it helped him or didn't help him. But the lie that he used years before, that had remained hidden for so long, resulted in him losing his, his dream job. And it wasn't like a harmless deception either. If you're thinking, well, who did that bring harm to? Well, it brought harm to the other person that could have been hired into the position in the first place. And it did harm to those he was deceiving. He, they were getting something other than they thought they were getting. Have you ever tried or, to lie to make yourself look better? You know, so you could get something you wanted, maybe something you didn't deserve. I think many of us are like the former Notre Dame coach. We, we want what we want so badly because if we get it, we think that we will be accomplished, that we will be worthy of love and admiration. See, when, when we lie, we show ourselves to be deeply insecure because we think that to be happy or accepted, we have to make ourselves something else, something other than we are. I think like O'Leary, we lie to create or protect an illusion of who we are. Which is really stupid if you're a Christian, right? Like that's really, really dumb, especially if you're a Christian. Because the Christian knows the gospel. And the gospel tells us that we're more wicked than we ever dared dream. And at the same time in Christ, we are more loved and accepted than we ever dared hope. If you're a Christian, it's not a big deal to say, I am broken. I, I don't have it all together. I'm weak. I'm not strong. This is, is who I am. 
In fact, it's what you must say to be a Christian. If you are unable to admit your flaws and you cover them up with lies, even simple lies, like everything is okay, my life is great, I'm not struggling with any particular sin right now, it's all good, then you are bearing false witness about who you are and about who the gospel is for. Because the gospel is for broken people, not together people. The gospel is for those who know that they need a doctor, need a savior, not those who don't think that they need a doctor or need a savior. If you're a Christian, you bear false hope when you tell these lies. It makes people think that they should put their hope in self or morality rather in Christ. Philip Ryken comments, If there is one thing God hates, it is the lies that Christians tell to make themselves look more righteous than they really are. Our testimony is that we are unrighteous, that there is no way we could ever be saved apart from the grace of God in Jesus Christ. The real truth about us is that we are so guilty, the very Son of God had to be crucified to pay for our sins. If this is true, then why would we ever pretend to be anything more than the sinners we are, saved by grace alone? To act like we have it together spiritually is a lie. But even more, it is a denial of the grace of God, which alone has the power to save us. Generally, we lie to get what we want. Uh, and when we're doing that, we're, we're lying to make ourselves look better. Uh, but the inverse is true, too, the, kind of the opposite. We, we lie to make others look worse, right? Lying to make somebody look worse always makes me think of the story of Naboth's vineyard in 2 Kings, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, 1 Kings. Uh, y'all know that one, maybe? Uh, it's one of the most heinous stories in all of the Bible. It goes this way. I'm going to summarize it because it's a little long. But, but Naboth has a vineyard and he's just like a normal dude, and it's next to King Ahab's palace. Uh, King Ahab wants to take Naboth's vineyard and turn it into a, a vegetable garden, right? And so he offers Naboth a better vineyard or some money in exchange for the current one. Naboth's like, no, I'm good. First uh, Kings 21.3 says, the, this is his answer, the Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. The land's supposed to be kept in the family. And so Ahab's request is kind of wrong from the start. Still, uh, because he's told no, Ahab sulks and he broods like he goes in on his bed and refuses to eat like a teenager. Uh, His wife, whose name you might recognize, her name's Jezebel, she hears about it and she tells him, cheer up, because she's going to handle everything for him. She's going to get him that vineyard. And then in the king's name, she sends off letters to the city that Naboth lives in and basically commands them to throw a feast and then to execute Naboth at the feast. And so the leaders comply, they have this big uh, feast going on, and they put Naboth like kind of front and center at the gathering, and they have two men who are described as worthless fellows uh, charge him with cursing God and cursing the king. Now the penalty for this is death by stoning, and so Naboth is unjustly stoned to death, and Ahab takes hold of the vineyard. Lying happens when I love myself above my God and my neighbor. What is it that you want badly enough to lie for? See, when when we lie, we not only show ourselves deeply insecure, but we also reveal ourselves to have a deep mistrust of God. Because what we're saying in our manipulation and our lying is that we know better than God how our lives should unfold. And so we try to seize control of our lives our own circumstances because we don't trust him to give us what is best. Our 
manipulating is a, an attempt to play God. Now, our sin, whether greed or worry or whatever, drives us to try to control the future with our carefully crafted falsehoods. See, in the story of Naboth's vineyard, we learn Jezebel is so smitten with herself that she utilizes Ahab's power and the power of the throne to manipulate others into bearing false witness themselves and bringing about the unjust death of someone else. How are you like her? How are we like her? Are you so smitten with yourself that you lie and manipulate others to get what you want? Do you gossip about others? casting them in far more negative light than is true. Maybe you even do it under the banner of a prayer request. Like, I've seen that one. Pastor, you really need to pray uh, for Joe Smith. Did you know that he's doing X, Y, and Z? And then X is only really partially true. I always want to go, yes, I'll pray. I'll pray right now. We'll pray together. And then whoever is with me, uh, Father, just save this broken sinner who's lying about our brother in Christ. We really need prayer right now. I mean, do, do you mistrust God and try to control the future by manipulating others through lies for your own gain. What have you lied about so things would go the way you wanted? Sometimes we lie to get out of things we don't want also, right? Uh, This always makes me think of my college days um, where in relationships you have that conversation. It's not you, it's me, but we both know it's really you, right? That one? Or, or the, the Christian version of it was this. Listen, I like you, but, but Jesus, he wants me to be single right now. He's not a big fan of yours, right? Like I heard that. I had students come to me and tell me that still goes on, I imagine. Lying to get out of what we don't want. Uh, maybe a more serious example, but I'm gonna have to set the stage for it a little bit before we get there. I think we lie to get out of conflict with others or out of consequences. We try to escape justice so here's the context, is, is when missionaries are, are sent into closed countries, uh, they're not allowed to tell people that they're missionaries, right? A, a closed country is a country that's basically said, if you are a missionary, you're not allowed here. We don't want your faith to come in here. And so they have to go in covertly on platforms, like we're here to study at the university or whatever. And they do those things, but primarily they're there to share the Gospels. And so one of the things that missionaries in closed countries are trained to do is to give what they call short, truthful statements Uh, And so if somebody would ask a missionary in a closed country, what brings you to my country? Uh, They might respond with something like, my family and I uh, wanted to live in a different part of the world. True, but not wholly true, right? It's true, but not, we came here because we want to teach others about Jesus true. It's really a lie of omission. Uh, But if you understand the ninth commandment like I do, this is a helpful lie. All that aside, uh, as effective as short, truthful statements can be at helpfully protecting missionaries in closed countries, they can be equally effective at harmfully concealing truth in a marriage. As one of my missionary friends lamented, uh, he had begun using short, truthful statements with his wife, right? He was trying to avoid conflict. And so a conversation might go, what did you do after class today? Well, I went to the grocery store and came home. True statement. But left out was the trip to Starbucks and the game of pickup hoops in between the grocery store and home, right? He was trying to get out of that conflict. We use lies to get what we want and to get out of what we don't want because we don't value the other person. Right? We want to pretend like we haven't dishonored the person that we've lied to. We want to pretend like the relationship that we've broken is unbroken. We want to escape the justice that's due to us. 
We lie to get out of just consequences and save our own skin because we love ourselves and our sin more than our neighbors and our God. Lying to hide sin is abhorrent because it, it conceals that break in relationship. And as a result, what happens when you cover up breaks in your relationship with lies is, is that it works like an open wound, right? That wound is just festering with infection, and you have no idea. It's like having cancer and being unaware of it. The wicked bear false witness to get what they want and to get out of what they don't want. Sinners like us do this so that we might take hold of the idols in our lives that we are worshiping and to try and escape justice. This is why God hates lying. Lying is antithetical to love and justice. And after all, it's a lie that brought sin into the world in the first place. A lie that was believed is truth. A lie that broke our relationship with God, right? Most of us are familiar with Genesis 3. Adam and Eve are in relationship with God. Everything is awesome. Then one day a serpent shows up and begins bearing false witness about God. He lies. Adam and Eve exchange the truth of God for that lie and do what God told them not to do. And as a result, sin enters into the world and suffering and death along with it. I mean, ever since that point in history, men have been believing in lies rather than the God who made them. Right? Lies bring death, whereas truth brings life. It is a little ironic that, that oftentimes we lie to protect ourselves from judgment or to try and take hold of the things we want when, when the truth is that only the truth can protect us from the judgment we deserve and give us that which our hearts really want. Only the truth can mend our relationship with God and only the truth can bring us true satisfaction. See, it's only when we give up our lies and tell the truth about ourselves that we can be rescued from God's just wrath and into his warm embrace. Again, think of Naboth's vineyard. Uh, Ahab and Jezebel want it badly enough to lie in order to take hold of it because they think it's going to make them happy. They abuse the power of the throne. They lie. They cause others to lie. And they bring about Naboth's unjust death. Then they try to steal for themselves what only Naboth had the right to give them. I don't think we're, we're much different. I think we try to steal the life and satisfaction that only God can give to us. Put our trust in counterfeit gods. We believe that lie of Eden, that, that we can somehow have life apart from God and serve only ourselves and that which makes us happy. The truth is that our lies fail. Our counterfeit gods failed, just like Naboth's vineyard failed Ahab. It didn't bring peace and happiness to Ahab's house. It brought destruction. Happiness built on lies is always fleeting. It's always short-lived. When we believe the lie that anyone or anything can make us happy aside from God, we will lie to secure for ourselves whatever that anyone or that anything is. And the cruel reality is that eventually that anyone or anything we so desire is going to let us down. It will leave us destroyed and in ruins because people and things make terrible gods. They can't live up. And though it's destruction we are owed, it's at this point that we cut our fingers on the sharp point of the gospel. It's, it's the most magnificent irony in all of history. We believe lies, tell lies, and kill for lies, just like Ahab and Jezebel. In our sin, we've acted to take what only can be given by God, 
by killing the Son of God. Yes, he died for your sin. Jesus was crucified because of your sin. We reject Jesus because we believe the lie that our sin is more satisfying than relationship with God. But see, God planned to redeem even this. See, Jesus is like Naboth. He's killed unjustly so that an evil people can enjoy his vineyard. See, uh, in the Old Testament, vineyards and and throughout Scripture, vineyards are uh, symbolic as pictures of prosperity and peace. By his death and burial and life and resurrection, Jesus brings us eternal peace and prosperity. At the cross, Yahweh flips humanity's greatest moment of rebellion into our rescue. What ought to have sealed our damnation opened up the way for our salvation. The death men intended for evil, God meant for our good. All of us deserve to meet the same just and horrific end as Ahab's house, but instead we are offered grace. God utilizes the epitome of our evil to end evil without ending us. At the cross, Jesus takes the punishment that we deserve so that we, when we are united to him by faith, can enjoy his position before the Father, his position in the family of God as sons, as those who stand to inherit all the endless riches that heaven has to offer. Christ gets what we deserve, and we get what only he deserves. In Christ, we rightly inherit the vineyard of peace that we wrongly tried to kill for. This is the grace of the gospel. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and it's only through faith in him that we can be set free from the deceitful tyranny of sin. It's only when we give up our lies and tell the truth about ourselves that we can be rescued from God's wrath and into God's embrace. And so, the truth about us needs to be stated explicitly that we are all evil wrongdoers. We are all guilty of listening to our hearts rather than God's word. We are sinners in need of someone to save us, in need of someone making us right with God. And the truth is is that only God can rescue lying sinners like us. And he only does so when we confess our sin, confess him as Lord. And it's at that point that he transforms us from lying, thieving sinners into truth bearing saints. We who were once false witnesses become Jesus' honest witnesses. Paul writes about this transformation in Ephesians 4. Remember, he talks about putting off the old way of life and putting on the new way of life, putting off sin and self and putting on Christ and Christ's likeness. The thief no longer steals, but now he gives. And this is what he writes in verse 21, the second half of it, on down through verse 25. Because the truth is in Jesus... You took off your former way of life, the old self that is corrupted by deceitful desires. You are being renewed in the spirit of your minds. You put on the new self, the one created according to God's likeness in righteousness and purity of truth. Since you put away lying, speak the truth, each one to his neighbor, because we are members of one another. We who have been saved by grace are to be truth bearers. Those united to Christ by faith no longer seek their own good at the expense of their neighbor, but instead seek the good of their neighbor at their own expense. 
Christians no longer try to lie in order to take hold of their lives and to escape justice, for they know that the justice due to their sin has been poured out on Jesus, and the life they long for has been given to them by Jesus. Christians no longer bear false witness because they've been transformed by truth. Uh, George Orwell once said, in a time of universal deceit, telling the truth is revolutionary. It's a revolutionary act. Let me exhort you, if you are a Christian this morning, to be a revolutionary. Believe the gospel and be a witness to its truth. Be a truth bearer. If you're here and you don't know Christ, let me exhort you to exchange the lies that you've believed in for the only truth that can set you free, for the only one who can bring you true and lasting satisfaction. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ who is crucified for your sin. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you bore our sins so that we might bear your name and your truth. We thank you that though the truth about ourselves that uh, we are wicked and that we deserve death is a most difficult truth to hear, that when you open our ears to hear it, it is also a revolutionary truth. Because along with it comes the reality that in Christ you have loved us that you loved us enough to send your son or to, to come yourself and take on flesh and die in our place. Lord Jesus, we thank you for living the life we should have lived, dying the death we should have died, and raising from the dead in order to secure for us peace with God. We thank you that you are the true vine and in you we have life. And so we pray this morning that you would make us truth bearers, that we would be those who speak the truth in love to one another, and to all we encounter. Send your Holy Spirit to us now. Empower us to know when to speak and how to speak, how to share the truth. And stir our affections for you. The one who was unjustly killed so that we might be welcomed by grace into the family of God. We pray this in your name. Amen.